Welcome to episode 143 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. And I'm Derek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Uh, And there is a great back catalogue there of all kinds of writers, authors, screenwriters, journalists, video game writers, comedians. So please do check that out if this is your first episode. But uh, this week is... I suppose the first of a a two part Christmas a special, I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this week we're chatting with Karen Swan, who uh, is an author of around twenty two books. So she's a prolific writer, and uh, she has a very interesting kind of winter summer alternating system where she does a winter book, which is sometimes a Christmas book, but not doesn't have to be a Christmas mm-hmm. book. But it's a kind of set in that time of year. And uh, and then a summer book, and she was goes back and forth, and she's written twenty two of those books uh, after having done a pretty interesting, you know, switch into writing from the world of fashion magazines. Yeah, like she was quite a successful journalist, but yeah, um, really got into writing when an agent suggested that she try fiction, and she sort of just went and and as she tells us, just started writing a scene, and suddenly caught the bug essentially, and since then has been, as you say hugely pro- prolific and also we chat to her about that sort of pressure of yeah two writing books a year. I mean, two books a year and writing different types of books for the summer and for the winter so um you know that that's some sort of timetable you've got yourself on there yeah. she, she but she is as she tells us quite disciplined I, th- I think that comes from the journalism side in terms of the yeah. amount of words she's writing a day and her targets and all of that sort of thing I mean it's funny we've, we've chatted to a few folk now who have been editors or journalists before they've gone into into writing novels and uh, and they all say that that what you learn doing that as a career for a few years is the dedication and the just going to get the words on the page and yeah that, that getting words on the, on the page is such a a useful important tool when it comes to writing books I, I, th- I think that's exactly right I mean a lot of People sometimes think, oh, the advantage of being a journalist is that you've got contacts, you've got ways in. But that isn't yes. always the case. Totally. It's it's more actually learning the, as you say, the basic task of, of yeah. getting the words the down. Of just, exactly. And sort of knowing, right, I need to get a thousand words here and knowing what that feels like, what that looks like, how long that'll take you and that sort of thing. That is only something you can learn by by doing, really. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's, a, it's a really interesting chat, Karen. It was great to speak with. So we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about the second half of our Christmas special episodes. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. 
As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? You know, I'm the most accidental novelist ever. I genuinely didn't. In fact, I was actively in denial about it. Um, <laughs> I had done English at uni, so I was a really avid reader. Um, like, when I read, I don't eat, you know, the dogs don't get walked, kids don't get looked after. I mean, everything, I just go into that world. So I, I've always been a bit obsessive about reading, but I thought that was normal. Um, and I had done English at uni. I was a journalist uh, on sort of women's glossy magazines. But I was sort of working through a process of elimination towards realising that writing was what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be the editor of Vogue. I didn't want to be an editor. You know, I would. I, I was an editor at that point. I was a fashion features editor and I would get people's copy in. And I was awful because I go, no, 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 no. This is how you do it. And I would basically <laughs> rewrite their copy for them, which is appalling, you know. Um, so I was a terrible editor. Um, but I then, you know, had my first child and I, I was seeing a doctor and and she sort of talked me into writing a book with her, a non-fiction book. And it was hugely commercial because uh, as, as well as having me as her patient, she also had Kate Moss and Gwyneth Paltrow and Stella oh, McCartney wow. and the great and the good. So <laughs> she was a doctor and she didn't know what, she wasn't a mum, so she didn't know what it was like to, to be the pregnant woman doing her programme. So she asked me to turn her medical notes into a commercial proposition, which was easy to do once we had that sort of commercial hook. So um, we wrote this book together and it was the agent for that who said to me, you must go into fiction. And honestly and truly, at no point had it ever crossed my mind to sit down and, and write fiction. To I just, I just loved consuming books it never occurred to me to create them and I did know that I loved the process of writing but I was actually really content with having a word count a brief and a deadline I sort of quite liked the the discipline of or or, or the structure of just being told go and do that and you know the idea of just writing a book 
as long as you wanted about anything at all <laughs> was like a really unwieldy concept for me to get my head around. And, and I didn't try to. I simply didn't think about it. Um, but she said, just sit down and write something. So I did. I went to the library. I sat down and wrote a scene. And it was a bit of a eureka moment of, oh, my God. God, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I suddenly, I actually realised that all my life I had been telling stories in my head. But I thought everybody did that. I really thought my husband walked around doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what that's what being alive is, you know. And it was only when I was just sat there and I was able to write this scene so easily. It was probably a rubbish scene, but, you know, I wrote it so easily and I looked at it and I thought... God, this really does feel like it would be in a book. And I didn't have a plot. I didn't have, you know, any character background, nothing. I mean, I just had this two-page scene, but it made me realise that this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm. And I sometimes get the heebie-jeebies thinking, what if I had never sat down that day? Because it wasn't coming from me, this motivation to do it. It was an entirely you know, external source slightly bullying me into sitting down and having a go. And she obviously saw something that, you know, I I hadn't recognised in myself. But, you know, from that moment, I realised that was what I was meant to do. And and although you'd been working, obviously, non-fiction, you, you worked at, at Tatler and Vogue and uh, then moved, I think, as an editor at You magazine. Um, when you were writing for those publications even though it was non-fiction were you sort of telling a story in in the articles that you were you were writing was there was there that side of it that sort of creative side of it even there definitely and and probably more so when you've got a 300 word trend piece to write on lace for vogue <laughs> and you're thinking god what do i say you know and so you you really that that was actually great discipline and i do mm-hmm. think actually that helped me yeah. um because i always loved writing but um and you know my school reports would say oh she's got a very distinctive style of writing or she writes very well and i would write thank you cards after a dinner party and people would comment on them and i think well it's just a thank you card. I mean, you know, no big deal. But people would always sort of comment on my writing. And it, it was, I don't know, I just, I, I think that I couldn't have done, I couldn't do what I do now without having had sort of the training that I had in journalism. Mm-hmm. It did give me discipline. It told me, you know, it was a brief, it was a word count, it was a deadline. And all of those things apply to fiction. And, you know, people have this idea of, you know, you're wafting around and you're waiting for inspiration to strike and you know it, it's all quite a nebulous process but actually it's a really razor sharp industry there's there's a massive machine behind me behind most writers you know you know if you're in a big publishing house there's a load of other people who can't get on with doing their job until you do yours so you have to be disciplined about you know writing to a brief writing to a, a deadline writing to a word count um, but I, I would even, you know, if I only had 300 words to write on lace, I would always, I, I love language. I re- for me, it's like music or, you know, paint colours. I really love a beautifully constructed sentence. It just pleases me. Mm-hmm. And so I would always 
whatever my word count was, I would always want it to read beautifully. I always cared about um, the rhythm of a sentence. I still do now. I, I there, There's sort of a musicality in language for me. And, and, and so, yeah, even though I was writing, you know, it, it wasn't storytelling. It wasn't creative writing in that way. I still wanted it to be a beautiful, crafted piece of work. Mm-hmm. And am I right in saying that you, it was run about the time you went on to mat leave that you wrote you sat down to actually write your first book is that is that right uh yes yeah, so i so i left you having never intended to leave i was pregnant with my first son and i everyone was jostling for my job and it was really quite <laughs> annoying and i was like back off ladies i'm so coming back <laughs> and they all wanted my job And then my son was born and I was like, well, I'm never leaving your side again. And (laughs) so uh, I I remember going in and handing in my notice and I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought, well, I'll just go back to freelancing because I'd done that in the past. Um, And and it was then that, you know, this uh, this doctor said to me, well, if you're not going back to the office, you know, write this book with me. And we wrote two books together. One was an antenatal and one was a postnatal book. And that sort of slotted in nicely with, me having my first two boys mm-hmm. um and it was after that that then you know it was the, the idea was put to me to have a go at fiction and, and and so then suddenly I found that I was a novelist without ever really having had a plan that I would be <laughs> so I mean you you described writing that, that having a go at writing that scene and then and, and and making this discovery that you know it, you could do it um what what was the development from that sort of random scene into your first manuscript it was utter chaos it was it was literally an example of how not to write a book so I'd written this scene and it was two women sitting in a garden toddlers running through the sprinklers and it's just dialogue but there was real energy I could just sort of see these women I I had their voices really quite clearly but there was no point to the, this. It was purely just a, like you're overhearing a conversation on the bus or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, God, I've started. Now I've got to finish. I've got to somehow create a book around. I mean, which is fairly idiotic. I mean, <laughs> I could have just gone, OK, I can write. So now I'll actually think of a plot. But no, 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 no. Where's the fun in that? So I was like, oh, I clearly have to make a plot around this scene. So I sort of sat down and I wrote some character profiles. I think there was um, four women. No, it started out as four women. It ended up being three women, three women best friends, all just very different vibes. And um, and I, 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 I had to quite literally make it up as I went along. There was no, you know, I didn't have an arc. I didn't know where I was going. I do remember lying prostrate on the bed, crying, thinking, what have I done? There was so many. And, oh, my God, I couldn't stop writing. It was well over 150,000 words when I handed it in. I mean, I could have just kept going. It was like the Bible. I could have just kept going and kept adding on more books to the end of it. And, you know, I was like, oh. And thankfully, I sort of got to some sort of resolution. And... They, I sent it out and, and they read it and, uh, you know, and the first thing they said was, we really need to cut this down. We need to lose about 50,000 words. And I was like, oh, my God. So 
that was obviously quite helpful. Having been an editor, I was able to go through it. And, you know, then I started, you know, through the uh, feedback from my agent, but also my my editor, they said, look, this character isn't really going anywhere. I think we could probably just get rid of her. So then I got rid of her and whatever I needed her for plot-wise in the book, I would somehow had to absorb within other characters. Um, so then I learned pretty early on, don't write characters who aren't going to add something. You know, mm-hmm. they've all got to have a point and a purpose. You know, Chekhov's gun. Mm-hmm. They've got to be there for a reason. So, you know, I learned that pretty early uh, and obviously, show don't tell. You know, um, I, one thing I like to do quite a lot is if I feel a, a scene isn't working, quite often it's because I'm I've gone into exposition and I I'm doing like what I call a a, a wide angled shot. Yeah. What I need to do is come in, focus, yeah. bring in dialogue, feel it, bring the reader into the action. And that was all stuff I had to learn as I went along because I. I'd done English literature at uni, but there was no creative writing. I mean, none of this was anything I knew about consciously. It was just that sense, I suppose, as a reader of why doesn't this feel right? Why do I feel removed from this scene? And I do quite often want to feel if I ever am stuck when I'm writing, I, I do just think if I'm the reader right now, what do I want to happen here? How do I want to feel rather than, me being the writer thinking, oh, my God, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do next. I sort of go back to the emotion of, as a reader, what do I want from this moment? Mm-hmm. And that yeah. quite often helps a bit. So so I think you said it was the agent that had suggest- made the initial suggestion you, to you to, to do this. Um, but did you, you mentioned an editor there as well. I mean, did was there some sort of, potential agreement in place regarding this before you even sort of started it uh no so i so actually the agent that i had originally dumped me okay (laughs) it was really embarrassing because she was so lovely because we'd had this great success with these other two books um Mm. she was so lovely and i thought gosh i think she's just being kind and maybe i can't write at all and, I, you know, I've got two young kids and I'm pregnant with my third and I really don't want to waste my time if actually she's just being kind. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll send it out to some more people, not because I wanted to go with them, but just because I, I just wanted to get a read of, you know, the landscape. Mm-hmm. Did anyone else think this was OK? Because I genuinely was blind. I had no sense of the sort of books I would write, you know, how I would be branded, where I would be positioned. I knew nothing. So... I sent the book out and I got really lovely letters back, most of them saying it's too long. Um, and, but, you know, but actually really encouraging. And then um, uh, I, I got, um, uh, although I spoke to her and uh, she, she rang and we spoke. And I said, just to let you know, I've sent it out to some other people only to get feedback. But she took offence and basically wrote me an email the next week saying, my mother's ill and I've got to trim down my client list. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know. And I was like, well, that's just bloody awful because now I've, I'm writing a book and I don't have an agent. This is a nightmare. So I then found myself in the wilderness with no way of knowing how to navigate the industry at all. And I bought this book, the, uh, where is it? Have I still got it? Right, it's the, you know, the 
Exactly. The writer's yeah. artist's handbook. I mean, yeah. got to have that. Got hold of that and sent it through and, and ended up with um, Amanda, who is my agent now. And we met for lunch and I knew we were going to get on because we turned up wearing the same top. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, wow. You know, and <laughs> and so we absolutely hit it off at this lunch and she was amazing. And then she sent it out to uh, the publishers and, and Macmillan, who I'm still with now, uh, immediately came back. And and that was just massively exciting. And, um, you know, I, I've had a couple of editors within Macmillan. Um, but Amanda, as my agent, is absolutely key uh, in the writing process for me because if I'm struggling with an idea, she's such an amazing sounding board for finding a commercial element to it if I can't find that or talking me out of it if she thinks that that's been done or whatever. She, she She's, you know, really plain speaking. But equally, if I'm really struggling and having a hard time and just, you know, I do two books a year so that the, the, the schedule is mad. And there are times when I'm like, I just can't do this. I can't have a family and basically do two jobs. And... um She's really good at calming me and just sort of, do you need me to ring them? I'll ring Macmillan. I'll ask for an extension. She's very, you know, she takes the weight off me. Um, mm. So it's it's a hugely important role, I think, your agent, you know, as well as your editor. Mm. Um, because it, in my experience so far, I've had three editors, um, but one agent. So, you know, she's my constant. Yeah. And I mean... You've you've went on to write I think twenty two books or so now and and as you alluded to there you've got a very interesting um, kind of publication pattern which is you have a summer book in the summer and a Christmas book in the winter and I kind of wondered to start off with how did you land on that schedule you know how did that kind of plan or that kind of kind of image of what you want to write how did that come about it was sort of weird and completely accidental as with me there's never a master plan it's just like you know perpetual chaos um and i had written my third book so i'd written the first two books the first book was built around that scene uh and really sort of wasn't the sort of book i wanted to write but it was the sort of it was sort of more the glitz market and at that moment in time those books were doing incredibly well this is not sort of 50, it was nothing like that. It wasn't 50 Shades of Grey, but it was, you know, glitzier. It was just more aspirational. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, that's what I need to do. Because again, I didn't know myself as a writer. I didn't know what yeah. I wanted to do. So I'd written two books like that. Then I had this idea for a story that was slightly out of that market. And I thought, hmm, but they've signed me on to, to do that sort of book. But I don't think I can sustain a career writing books I didn't really want to read myself. Yeah. And I had this idea for this book, and I thought, well, I'm just going to send it in. And at that point, my first two books were published in January. And I sent this book in, and immediately my editor saw the potential. Like, like immediately, she was like, yes. She just knew that as long as I could deliver on this synopsis, she knew it was going to be a bestseller. Mm -hmm. It was amazing to see that sort of machinery swing into action. And she came up with the title, Christmas at Tiffany's, and it was a bestseller. It did amazingly well internationally here. And it was my first big hit. And I was like, okay. And that had come out in the November. So that had sort of positioned me in the, in the Christmas market. 
So suddenly I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christmas writer. <laughs> but as far as I was concerned, Christmas at Tiffany's was actually a book about a woman whose marriage breaks up and she got married young. She didn't really know herself. And so her three best friends, each of whom live in a different city, sort of take her under their wing while she's working out where she's going to live, what she's going to do. So she goes to Paris, New York and London and um, she effectively becomes a new woman in each city. So to me, this was not a Christmas book. I mean, to me, this was New York, Paris, London. This was fashion-y. It was slightly more my background. Um, but suddenly I'm now positioned as a Christmas author. So I wrote the next book and I had a, a really bad, I had some bad luck. I decided as a backstory, I went a little bit dark and there was sort of an amnesia stalker uh, thread right right in the back it wasn't it wasn't the main plot thread but unfortunately for me there was a book that had just come out which actually I've forgotten the name of it um it was made into a film with Nicole Kidman and it's about a woman who's got amnesia and she oh, wakes yeah. up oh, and um, do you remember the name of it don't remember now before I go to sleep that yeah. was it and um now I've written I've spent a year writing this book and my editor reads it she goes look I know you've spent the last year writing this book and that book has only just come out and there's no way you could have known. But she said the film, by the time this book comes out next November, the film's going to be out and everyone's going to think you've copied it. So you're going to have to completely rewrite the book. <laughs> I'm crying. I'm sobbing. I'm begging, saying, please, God, no, don't make me do that. And she said, we have to, we can't, we just can't publish it. And I just had an amazing hit they're so excited about the next book. And now I've massively stuffed up. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the end of January, early Feb. And she said, the absolute latest we can give you to it till is first week in April. And then we've got to present to the, you know, to the stores. They've got to have it. They're going to be buying. We've got to get it out if you want it to be on the shelves in November. So I'm crying. I'm sobbing. I'm writing day and night, seven days a week. Had I, out of 120,000 words, only kept 30,000. Oh, man. Characters who'd been, you know, twisted and dark now had to be really nice. He's the good guy. He's the boyfriend, whatever. You know, I had to completely reconfigure the plot dynamics, the characters, the backstories, everything in about six weeks. And I did it. And honestly and truly, the book was so much better and it made me realize that I actually worked better with a really, I mean, it's being a journalist. Yeah, I worked better with a yeah. really strict deadline. Give mm -hmm. me a deadline. Give me a, give me a brief. Tell me what not to do. And I did it. And the book was, and even now when they, my publishers occasionally do, you know, um, uh, surveys with readers and reader groups and which is your favorite of her books. And they all say either Christmas at Tiffany's or the perfect present which was this this follow-up one and um so it made me realize that actually I worked well under pressure and I could do so much more than I had I had assumed I could and I do love doing the Christmas books but it can be quite limiting only to write to a certain sort of time you know that that yeah. that vibe that cozy you know yeah. everything is good feeling and I again I just thought well I want to sustain this as a career and I can do that, but I also want to do other things as well. And I don't want to get pigeonholed into only doing that one thing. 
So I'd sort of proved to them at that point that I could do it. So they were happy to take the punt on me. And I just find that the summer books just give me that bit more flexibility, you know, with location, tone, plot. You know, it's just it's just a slightly area brief. Um, so I, I have a bit more creative freedom, I feel, in those books. But, you know, I've got a really core and loyal reader base for the Christmas books mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, I really cannot let them down. Yeah. But d- does does that reader base transfer across to the summer books as well? Then it does. I think there is a really solid core. Mm. Uh, my summer books are actually now bigger sellers than my Christmas books. So it's interesting. I, I think, yeah, I think I think there is a big crossover. But I think with my summer books, I'm just appealing to more people who don't necessarily, you know, want you know, a festive title necessarily. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, It's just a bit more open. Do you ever worry, you know, I mean, two books a year and, and, and yeah, you're kind of putting on two hats, I suppose, each each, or back and forth as, as you go, where do you get your ideas from? You know, where do you, where do you, do you you have a list of ideas that that you know you're going to tackle or do you just kind of say, right, it's time for the Christmas book. What am I going to do this time? I do write things down in the back of my diaries and I just think, Oh, I know that's not right now, yeah. but that, that could be quite good three books from now. So I, I will, if I'm struggling for an idea, I will go back to my diaries and see what I've written. And it's amazing how something that you've sort of parked can suddenly feel like, yes, now's the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's also like really random places. Um, like one time it was a Saturday morning. I was about 10,000 words into my new Christmas book. And, you know, the pressure was on. I was slightly behind on the schedule already. And I was like, I really got to just get going. And I was, we were having a dinner party that night. And I remember so clearly, I was slicing aubergines in the kitchen. <laughs> and um, Radio 4 was on and it was Saturday Live. And there, it was unbeknownst to me, because I'd come in halfway through the interview, but Tim Peake was about to go up to the International Space Station. Mm. Um, this was, you know, what, five, six years ago. And they had on uh, a female astronaut uh, talking about how her experience on the ISS. And she said something, and I, I was sort of tuning in and out, and she said this thing. She said, well, you know, when you're up there, uh, we, we got given uh, our ham operator license, our ham radio operator license. And it slightly caught my attention because I thought, hang on a minute, in order to be an astronaut, you basically have to be a genius. <laughs> <laughs> You have to be fluent in Russian to get up there. You know, these are the precursors. You are like the elite of the human race. And yet they are only going to give you your ham operator license (laughs) while you are orbiting Earth. Only then, then you've got to give it back again. And so this sort of caught, and I was like, what? And that caught my attention. And then she said, and it was so lovely because, you know, uh, the ISS orbits Earth three times a day. And she said, it's so lovely because you've actually got people out there all over the world, you know, using their their ham radios specifically to make contact with the ISS. And she said, you do actually make friends with people, like with the astronauts, Mm -hmm. or she was the astronaut. She said, you actually make friends with people on Earth. And Mm -hmm. it was so lovely to orbit and to hear their voice, the crackle, and then hear their voice. And my husband walked in and I was standing with the aubergine in my hand. And he said, oh, God, what? And I said, 
that would be such a great way to meet someone. And he said, what do you mean? And I went, oh, I said, oh my God. And I, and I was sort of lost in my head. And that was a Saturday morning, all weekend. I was thinking, no, it's mad. I couldn't possibly write about an astronaut on the ISS, for God's sake. But I just kept thinking that would be such a great way to introduce two characters. And, mm. um, you know, you can bring in peril and you've got a remote mountain location and all. And I was like, Canada, yes, this is brilliant. And my, my head was just sparking. And so on Monday morning, I thought, I really can't put this in an email to my editor. I'm actually going to have to speak to her. And so I rang her and I said, no, don't panic. Don't panic. But how would you feel if the guy is in space? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, oh, my God. And I could hear her. I said, please don't panic. I know I can make this work. And it, and it became my book, uh, Christmas under the stars and and honestly I'm so proud of it it's amazing the amount of information you can get when you do your research so actually it, you know it technically I've even got it down uh to the area code for Banff if you were to operate I mean that's how fastidious I was um so random things like that you know the radio um Time magazine I find very useful because it's all it's pretty American based, but it's got a lot of sort of world events and just big, big, big sky ideas that are quite useful for getting, you know, the synapses sparking. Mm. And then another time, a friend of mine, she's a CEO of a company and she she had a business coach uh, because, you know, when you're the, the top person in a in a big company you know who's your mentor who do you go to for advice so she had this business coach and she told me about how first of all she told me what her her business coach was paid which I couldn't believe and then she told me about how this coach had been basically paid to manage someone out of this FTSE 100 family and uh, company and make them think it was their idea and she, I was looking at her going, what? <laughs> and she went, oh, no. I said, names will be changed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you could just be having a conversation with a friend. Yeah. And, you know, or you're listening to the radio or you're reading the magazine, a magazine or, you know, it's just everywhere. And it, it, a book is never just one idea. Mm. It's always, you know, it's four or five. Yeah. You've got yeah. to build them up and layer them. But, you know, so it's just keeping a record so that you can, you know, thread them in and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and obviously going back to the, the very first book, the, the, the scene, um, there was no planning involved at that point. But yeah. nowadays when you've got two books to write a year, are you, are you a fastidious planner? No. And, you know, I, I went to a lunch with like a load of authors and it was like a press lunch. And um, we were all sitting there. And I was sitting next to this author opposite me. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. She said, I absolutely plan my books to the right to the end. And she said, when I got my edits, they took 33 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, at that point, I'd written about 18 books. So, you know, I knew how to write a book. But I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and... I just couldn't believe it, but it's horses for courses, isn't it? And yeah. for me, I 
I find that when I know too much about the story, all I want to do is get there. I'm just permanently just, I mean, I could basically write a book in three chapters because all I want to do is get to get to the good bit. I don't want to do the building up and the scene setting and, you know, the backstory. I just want to get into it. And so I just think that actually it's quite good for me not to know too much. It's quite good for me to have to sit with the characters and get to know them. Um, and also I tend to think that if you are able to see six steps ahead, well, then so can the reader. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, you know life, life is never that transparent that you are able to see what is going to happen in your own life four months from now or even six hours from now. You know, everything is complex and layered and organic and constantly changing and, you know, things happen in your own lives that you think, I never could have imagined that this would happen. You know, you go out, you get rear-ended by a bus and you know what I mean? You're just going about your life and something happens and it's, it's the same with books. You sort of need to have that element of surprise and that element of actually not knowing what is going to happen, you know, on the next page. And I think that if you plot it and it's probably different for thriller writers because you know that's that's a different brief but from for my books I think that it needs to feel more organic and like you are living with these characters and everything is character driven Mm -hmm. um rather than plot driven Mm -hmm. I am I think I read in uh, an interview or a few interviews actually I was reading about you that people were saying that you know it's not a Christmas time for them unless they've got one of your books to read. And it's like a kind of a ritual or like a routine for them almost, and which is really nice. And it must be really nice having that kind of loyal fan base that you've grown. And, and it made me think that these people must be expecting a certain elements to be present, you know, because if, if this is a kind of Christmas kind of comfort read, they, they want yeah. something to be, to be there. And is that something which you ever, ever, ever struggled with? You know, that, that, that feeling that you maybe... You, you kind of you feel that your readers expect you to put certain things in you maybe want to try something different or 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 is that something you quite enjoy given that kind of given them what, what they want yeah there's definitely an expectation from the readers that you're going to give them a particular feeling yeah um but i what i don't do is sort of what I call cozy Christmas. My although my books are set at Christmas, they're not actually about singing carols around the tree or yeah. they're not that. So the book that's just come out, actually um it's a his hers perspective and he's climbing Annapurna in, in Nepal. I mean, you know, it's it's not that Christmassy. <laughs> there's a lot of snow, but there's also quite a lot of peril and you know frostbite. So um it's <laughs> so I, I sometimes people will sort of comment that, oh, actually, this wasn't really a Christmassy book or this wasn't that Christmassy. But mm-hmm. I don't want to get too into that because, I again, I have this fear that I could maybe do three books like that and then I would have nothing to say. So, again, yeah. you know, what I think people do want at Christmas is that feeling of there's sort of a pressure at Christmas time for life to be perfect. You know, we, we don't go around tidying our houses and, and making everything perfect and getting all the family over for Easter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But for Christmas, you know, even if you're not Christian, there is a, there is a, a sort of a, a pause for a few days. There is a holiday period. Everything sort of comes to a, a stop. And it's just that feeling of, 
I, you know, there's a pressure there for people to to want life to really come together and be the, the most perfect it can be. So that's what I try to get my characters getting at the end of their story. I want to give that feeling, but you know that the plot really might be quite gritty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, my book that came out two years ago, uh, which was set in Amsterdam. Is she was a war photographer and she's dealing with PTSD, you know, and there's pretty horrible flashback scenes, you know, uh, which are quite. And I, I do remember sitting there when I was again about twelve thousand words in, and I had just discovered that the Dutch don't actually celebrate Christmas; they have Sinterklaas and they do St Nicholas Eve, which is the fifth and sixth of December. Oh. I had been to Amsterdam to do my research. And with all the bad luck in the world, I had arrived in Amsterdam the week before the big Sinterklaas celebrations, where he he literally sails into the city on a barge, (laughs) throwing sweets. And then he goes through the city on a white horse. And I was there the week before. And my assumption was that like the rest of most of Northern Europe, they're big on Christmas Eve. I had no idea there was this whole other. So I, so there I am going, so I'm writing a Christmas book set in a country that doesn't actually celebrate Christmas. And my backstory is set in Syria and my heroine has PTSD. Excellent. This is feeling really cosy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and I was thinking, and my husband looked at me and went, why do you do this? He said, just change it. And I said, no, I can't. This is the story. This, this, this is it. But I did spend a whole day, again, it was a Saturday. I spent a whole Saturday staring at the wall thinking, oh my God, I need another idea fast. I literally need to think of an idea fast because this is not going to fly. And actually it did, it did incredibly well and people loved it. But, you know, it was it was not obvious at the time that this was going to feel like, you know, a Christmas bestseller. Mm. Um, and, and honestly, they, I know that the art department hate me. They're like, oh God, where's she gone now? <laughs> and you know, when they're doing the audiobooks, they're like, oh no, what accents do we need? You know, <laughs> and I mean, they like, they hate me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, because I, I, it's just never straightforward. <laughs> and and the latest book, which you touched on there was, uh, is, sorry, the Christmas postcards. Um, do, you, do you just want to tell us a little bit about that one? So that one was actually uh, uh, prompted, I suppose, by a social media post I saw, which was all about the kindness of strangers. It was like a good news story. And it was about this little girl who had lost her toy, her favourite toy in Iceland. And I don't know, some tour guide driver sees it puts it in the bus and he sort of you know takes it with him and when he goes to the airport someone on the plane takes it with them back to the UK and then the father of this little girl is then there at the airport ready there to to, to take receipt of this lost toy and it was all about all these strangers working together to make this happen now as a parent of three kids each of whom had a particular toy that completely dominated our lives because if they didn't have the toy, you know, when they're like two and three, Mm -hmm. uh, they could not sleep. So, you know, by the time my daughter was born, as soon as 
it became apparent which was the toy. I would buy triplicates so that we, we could just, my husband and I could have an evening sitting down, not dealing with kids screaming, not able to go to sleep because they didn't have their toy. So that was sort of the main, I thought that again, what a great way to get people to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so the other half of the book, so we, we've sort of got this character, she's a woman, her marriage is a bit rocky and they go on a make or break holiday. And then they stay at an Airbnb on the way back and she checks out, they check out, leave the toy behind. Four hours later, the next incumbent into the Airbnb checks in. And he's a guy making his way uh, en route to Nepal to Trek Annapurna uh, base camp. And uh, he finds the toy, takes it as a lucky mascot. And then there's this sort of, you know, oh, God, they've got to find the toy. And and so because he's now in the middle of nowhere and can't send it back, he starts to send emails so that this young child is consoled and she can see the see the toy. And, and so it, again, creates communication between these two characters. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really nice way of bringing two incredibly different lives together. And so the book really, ha- you know, you literally go from being in Dorset you know, sleepy, lovely, snowy Dorset to, you know, really quite scary Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and how far in advance are you writing these books on the, on this sort of two, two a year schedule? I literally handed in the second draft for my summer book next year. I handed that in this morning. Right. And I need to hand in next Christmas's book by the end of January. So I need to crack on. (laughs) But I've got another two or probably three edits to do on this summer book um, before I can sign that off. And of course, I'm promoting the Christmas postcards, which is out now. Mm -hmm. And I've got to do the research for whatever next Christmas's book is going to be. And honestly and truly at this moment, I do not have a clue. I don't have a location. I don't have a plot. I don't have even a single idea, Wait, which is quite scary. Due in at the end of January. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You hysterical laughter. It's well, so I, I did, terrible. I did want to ask about your about your writing style. I mean, I mean, what is your routine? You know, do you do you write quite quickly? Then are you quite a fast writer? Yes, I am. I will be for the Christmas book because <laughs> this um, because I have to be because <laughs> I'm already behind. I mean, my God, it's November. God, um, it's yes. I'm I'm pretty disciplined. So what I tend to do uh, with this book is I say, right, I'm going to do fifteen thousand words a week. So it's three thousand words a day, five days a week. That means that I have got my weekends off. So if I have a bad day and I don't write 3,000, I only get 500 words or 2,500, then I know I've got to work the weekend until I get to my word count. And I will literally go through my diary and I'll do 15, 30, 45, 60, 75. And it really calms me to know that by next Sunday, I'm halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and it... <laughs> always makes my editor laugh because I say no no I'll be at 85,000 words by then so that is fine and she's like (laughs) but how can you know and I'm like because I know (laughs) because there is no other option I mean there isn't another option I just have to keep going um 
So is is that the journalism that 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 helps with that sort of setting goals and sticking to them kind of a thing? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, I was told early on, you know, uh, that my first agent who dumped me, you know, she said you've got to have bum glue. And honestly, I when I'm drifting off to the kitchen to make yet another cup of tea, I think bungalow, sit down, just sit down, <laughs> keep sitting there and just keep going, you know. And there are times when you just think it's such agony and it's so horrid and painful when, when you hit a block and mm. you just can't see what's coming next. You might have had the best day yesterday and written through your 3,000 words. And then you're sitting there and you're like, you know what sort of should come next, but you just can't see it. Mm. And it's such an awful feeling. And what I've learned is that even if I sit there for eight hours and, I, and I've only written 200 words by three o'clock, I tend to find that I get a bit of a second wind later in the afternoon or early evening. So um, I sort of hold on for that. But also I find that even if I do write absolute twaddle, invariably I hit upon something right in those dying moments which was what I needed to get to all along. So I've still got to work the weekend because I've now got to spend the next day writing in what I should have written that day, but at least I'm back on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's, I, 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 for me, it doesn't work, you know, going off and doing something else. I, I need to be focused on it. The only thing that works for me um, is either going for a drive, if I'm driving, I'm thinking, and walking the dogs. So if I'm really stuck, I'll go, go out into the forest with the dogs, and, and that helps as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm all the time, I'm working on it. Even if I'm walking the dogs, I'm actually still working. What, what sort of stuff do you, do you tend to get stuck on? Is it, is it plot issues, or is it, is it the actual, the, the words, the actual language, and the, the, the writing part of it? It tends to be sort of, there tends to be sort of choke points where you've got a lot, you've got to get certain bits of information in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I can't quite work out the running order. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like, oh, but if I put that in now, then that means we know that. And then what does that mean? Oh, but then that's too early. We don't want to know that yet. And sometimes I can feel like I spend the whole day sitting there mm-hmm. trying to work out the running order mm-hmm. and if I've had two or three days like that then what I tend to do is I think right I go back into say the last three chapters and I start editing those just to put my head back in the story and invariably you might see that maybe I gave you know I made a character aggressive in a scene and maybe they just needed to be irritable or snappy yeah. rather than yeah. angry you know I just got the tone a little bit off and i sort of see it like a plumb line you know when you're like you know hanging wallpaper and you've you've got the the plumb Mm -hmm. the plumb line and you know if you don't absolutely have it plumb every time by the by the time you get to the end of the room the wallpaper is almost horizontal and and that's what i sort of feel with the book that sometimes you can just make one decision in a scene that maybe structurally doesn't affect anything but it's just that the mood is slightly altered and skewered it a bit and that affects the energy or the dynamic between the characters and then you get to the next scene you're like oh I can't really see it Mm. um so that's so I find it quite helpful to go back if I have you know and and that that can unblock it as well that's a nice way to look at it I like that yeah yeah Mm. and so does does that mean that 
are you, are you someone that will edit as you go as opposed to sort of getting yeah. into the draft and then editing? Yes. And sometimes I'll get to about maybe about 60, 70,000 words, about two thirds of the way through. And at that point, you've written such a lot of the story and you sort of know at that point where the end, what the ending is going to be, how you're going to get there. But equally, if I know what I've put things in earlier that now need to be changed because I know more now than I did Mm. then until it's all really clear and linear in my mind I find it really difficult to sort of you know because there's so much information always in the endings that it's like oh my head is just a bit woolly I just need to really know where I need to come at you know come at this at a gallop so I'll go if I've got the time I'll go back go through and do really quite a heavy edit if I can so that then I'm really coming into the ending with a a really clear head of what am I getting to Mm -hmm. and sometimes I don't have that time some and and then it is all a bit messy um but you know sometimes because the schedule is so tight you know I have to send in a really gopping draft to my editor and just say don't panic there's a lot of emails that start with don't panic you know (laughs) You know, and when I get a new editor, I'm like, oh no, oh no, because I'm not like your other authors. Because I'm, <laughs> I am chaos, perpetual chaos, and you're going to be so frightened when you see what I give you. But don't panic; it's always fine in the end. You know. <laughs> so, uh, so what, what, what's next? I mean, you've got your you've got your summer book drafts uh, to to finish, and then you've got. To... Got to come up with an idea and then write write the Christmas one. Is is that is that as far as as far in advance as you allow yourself to get sort of thing? Yeah. So funny enough, I know more about next summer's book, as in the one I'll write next summer, not the one that's being obviously I know the one that's being published because I've now written it. But that so the summer book is they're now part of a series, and that's why I haven't been able to write at pace, and I'm a little bit behind because. That has been a whole other logistical challenge um, because it's effectively there's like a mystery and then a story told through four or maybe five women. And so we there are different timelines in each book, but there are also what I call uh, touch points where we have the same scene seen from a different perspective. So all the time I'm having to refer back to Mm. clues I laid down in book one, timings of book one, but also lay down threads for book three and book four and maybe book five. And it was so slow and torturous. And like, I was like, why? Why (laughs) did I think that was a good idea? Um, And it's set in 1930. So again, there's huge amounts of historical research I have to do. So I was... um, that was really hard, but actually I do know what largely the story is because I've had to, that, that it's, this is the exception to the rule for me. I have had to work out quite a lot of the plot for this series. Um, I still don't know the finer details. I just know the macro points, the high, you know, um, the high narrative points, but I don't know the details of how I get anywhere. Um, so I know about next summer's book and really I wish I could just go straight into that now because my head is in that space and it's quite frustrating to have to really park that yeah. and put my head in literally a whole other world. Yeah. Um, and that was difficult last year and it's going to be difficult again this year. 
but you know I did this to myself I have no one to kick (laughs) but me um so you know don't feel sorry for me (laughs) I'll have my own little pity party on my own um but yeah, I mean, I've really now got to, I, I what I have got, I, I have a subscription to Time Magazine and I just hold, I just, you know, put them in a corner and I will sit there and it will take me about three or four days to read six months worth of Time Magazine, which really does my head in because uh, it's very American mm-hmm. weighted and it's a lot of American politics. But, you know, I, saw, I, I sort of just make myself go through it because you just you just want to know what's happening in the world and just see other topics and issues. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully I'll find something there or hopefully I'll, I tend not to read fiction when I'm writing, which is difficult when I'm writing for most of the year, but I sort of have these, I go on a a binge, you know, when I have a brief window and I'll read so many books in a short period. So I'm hoping that maybe again, a thread, a kernel of an idea, something will be kicked off by, you know, all you need is a single sentence sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I saw um, for one book, I mean, it was, it was just like four sentences in a sidebar in the Times on a Saturday morning talking about um, a woman in Iran who had woken up from a 23 or 22-year coma. She'd been taking her toddler son to nursery and she was in a car accident and she was in a coma and she woke up after 20 and there's her fully grown son mm-hmm. with a family. And I, and I, I just sort of read this and I thought, my God, I didn't think people that was possible to make a recovery after that long. You know, I assumed you would stay in a, a vegetative, you know, persistent vegetative mm-hmm. state as they call it. And, but no, and, and I was reading about her and I thought, my God, how much would that mess with your head? Oh, yeah. Come back to your life and find that all your family went on without you. Yeah. And again, so that was that four-line tiny piece in the Times then gave me what became the hidden beach. You know, this man wakes from a coma to find his family has gone on without him and he wants them back. Mm. But they've gone on without him. And, you know, so it's... I will look everywhere and I, I won't know where I, it's stressful. I won't know where I find it until I find it. You know, yeah. I won't know where to look. I just have to look everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? Oh God, it was, um, it was actually a book for research. It was called Crottle and White and it's, um, it's by a chap called Finley J. MacDonald, and it was research for uh, The Stolen Hours, which is the book that's coming out in the summer. And uh, the, the strap line is Scenes from a Hebridean Boyhood. And it was, it was written in the 1960s, but it's about his childhood in the 1930s. God, that man is funny. I mean, laugh out loud funny. And it was so poignant. And it's one of three. Uh, it's a, a trilogy. And I said to my husband, you really need to read the and he did and we just devoured them um so that was a bonus because that was meant to be research and i absolutely loved it nice um what about the last film that you watched oh god (laughs) embarrassingly that would be how to lose a guy in 10 days with my daughter (laughs) and she couldn't believe i will she said 
I'd never seen it. And she said, oh my God, mommy, like, like she's 16. And she said, mommy, she said, I've seen this like 20 times. And I said, well, I don't really like Matthew McConaughey, darling. You don't like <laughs> anyway, McConaughey? Yeah, no. <laughs> but she, uh, anyway, I watched it and yes, it was, it was fine, but I'm afraid it <laughs> <laughs> that was during his his big rom com period. That was a rom com. Yes, period. indeed. Yeah, he's gone. He's indeed. gone down a more serious yeah. role. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and what about the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Ooh, uh, oh God! We've just started watching that SOS. What's it called? It's start- SAS, not SOS. Oh yeah, the, the, SAS. It by the Peaky Blinders person. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. good. Yeah, it was good. So, I mean, it's I am obsessed with Peaky Blinders. So um, I was like, okay, well, I'm totally watching that. And, um, yeah, no, that that's really up my street. So it only started last night, but I've got high hopes. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. So I oh, gosh, no, okay. no right answer here apart from one of them. But we'll start off with summer holidays or Christmas holidays. Uh, Christmas holidays. Uh, I couldn't say, yeah. TV <laughs> or cinema? Cinema. Night owl or early bird? Early bird these days. Um, music or no music when you're writing? No music. And last one, audiobook or ebook? Audiobook. Can't do ebooks to save my life. I get so stressed with the percentage in the bottom. I'm like, what do you mean I'm first 27% left? What does that mean? I, I realize that for me, when I read a book, I need the weight of the book in your hand. If it's all in your right hand, then you've got the book to read. And if it's all in your left hand, you sort of know that you're at the end. Yeah, there, there is something can't. good. When you've got the actual book, you can yes. see well, how much same, more can, to go there is. What are you talking about? It's the same thing with percentages. 30% less It doesn't means work in the same way, though, psychologically, somehow. Like 5% <laughs> is that going to be five pages? Is it going to be one page? Yeah, exactly, yeah. You just can't tell. So I, I, you know your reading speed, you know your page. It's just, <laughs> just perfect. You're an ebook reader. <laughs> yeah. I'm, an e-book, I'm one of the few ebook readers that we've checked in the podcast, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that was a really great chat with Karen. I, I really enjoyed that. And I mean, it's a really interesting techniques she's got, you know, not only the amount of words she does per day, but, but that kind of writing two thirds and then pausing to kind of edit before you do the final push. I quite like that. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a good idea, really, to give you that. So you you sort of get everything in order before you, you run yeah. towards the finish line. I can, I can see why that would be a benefit, yeah, you, actually. You're not left with... with finishing it and thinking christ i'm gonna to have to change so much of this because the ending's gone somewhere yeah I didn't expect exactly it yeah. yeah so and obviously it'll help you focus on what on how to bring all those threads together yeah, as well yeah. and so. just as a, i think a psychological point of view of thinking mm-hmm. this i've got two-thirds of a book here it's, it's working well you know it's just a final push yeah i'm done I, I do like that yeah yeah definitely so thanks to karen for coming on to the podcast really enjoyed that chat and obviously uh, the Christmas Postcards, which is the latest Christmas book, is uh, out now in your local bookshops or you can buy it online. We'll put a link in the podcast description. Uh, and I don't envy her having to write her next book <laughs> within a month or six weeks or oh, something no, like that. The 
pressure I would not enjoy. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, three three thousand words a day, she'll, oh, she'll get, she'll get that done easy. Then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and next week, as I said at the start, uh, we have a second sort of Christmas themed episode. Yeah, next week we're going to chat with Jenny Bayliss, who's written three Christmas books. Um, her latest one is called Meet Me Under the Mistletoe, uh, and is out now as well. And uh, she's she's got her own um, avenue into the Christmas market, and it's it's interesting chatting with her and seeing how she compares her experiences and 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 what her audience is like and what they're looking for in these mm-hmm. kind of similar authors, but also different in a lot of ways. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, and you know it, what these episodes have brought to my attention is that there is a specific market for yeah, yeah. Christmas books. You know, it's it's interesting that people want that um, specific period yeah. to, to I've, I've, around which to set a story. I've read a lot of people saying, a lot of readers who say things like, you know, it's not Christmas unless I'm reading one yeah, of these, exactly. this person's Christmas books. Yeah. And it's, it's something uh-huh. that I never thought of, but it's obviously, yeah, it's I guess it's like that thing on the internet where you find anything there's no such thing as a small niche, you know. Any anything you've yeah, got a niche, there's right. going to yeah, be yeah. hundreds of thousands of people that would be into that. Yeah, so yeah it's it, it's a much bigger market than I thought, and it's it's really interesting kind of learning about it. Yeah, so do tune in for that episode next week, and uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please do take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. That really helps us to continue to get some great guests on the podcast. And of course, if you want to get in touch, you can always drop us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet in the twitter machine which is at uk page one and i believe there's also some kind of mastodon type yeah we're on uh, writing.exchange as at page one pod well that's, that's yeah, very much easy. easier than i thought it was going to yeah, be yeah, yeah, go. was exactly struggling. so you can find us there See, Hive is you can also away, so i'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> gonna just stay on twitter for the time being i think you can also uh, check out our youtube channel if you haven't done that we do have some video interviews up there as well so uh, please do that uh and otherwise have a great week and we'll speak to you next episode see you later 